Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to those here in the room, as well as those who are listening online. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. In 23 days, the UK will leave the European Union after a difficult period of political uncertainty and negotiation. But leaving will not be the end of the UK's relationship with the EU, a relationship built on a shared history, shared values, and similar hopes for the future. What will this new relationship look like? To set out her vision of the crucial next steps, I am delighted to welcome President Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, back to the LSE today. Now, some of you may have noticed in the announcement of today's event uh, that it referred to Dr. van der Leyen as an LSE alumna first and President of the European Commission <laughs> second. You may think we have got the order wrong, but it simply reflects how proud we are of her achievements as a former student of the school, a place where she herself has said she found an inner freedom which, which has stayed with her ever since, and which has led her to go on to being the longest serving cabinet minister in Chancellor Merkel's government, and most recently as the first woman to serve as Germany's defense minister, and now as president of the European Commission. And we are also proud of her daughter, who is a graduate of the school, and her other daughter, who will soon be joining the school. So it is a long and very personal and close relationship. But moving on to her current role as president of the European Commission, the topic of her speech today, old friends, new beginnings, building a new relationship, a new future for the EU-UK partnership, could not be more welcome and more timely at this particular moment. Now, just a few logistics. For Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Europe, and this event will be recorded and podcast and available for live streaming. There will be time for questions after the lecture, uh, and I'll take questions from members of the public and students and also take some questions from the press as well. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Ursula van der Leyen, President of the European Commission. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be back here at the London School of Economics. It is a place indeed that brings back many, many memories to me. So uh, the year, I spent one year, one year only at uh, the London School of Economics, but it taught me so much. It taught me a lot inside LSE and taught me a lot outside LSE, as you can guess. And uh, anyone who knew me at that time will tell you uh, that I probably spent more time in Soho bars and Camden record stores <laughs> than in the Senate House Library, so to spare me my own blushes, I'll spare you the details of that. <laughs> but what I can say is that the time I spent here opened my eyes. I got to know a warm, vibrant, colorful, multicultural society the likes of which I had never experienced before. I saw people from different walks of life going out together, enjoying life, breathing freedom, 
I immersed myself in the melting pot of cultures, traditions, and music indeed, and I truly fell in love with this city and this country. This country, strong-willed, open-minded, big-hearted, proud and patriotic, kind and generous in spirit, full of traditions, full of contradictions too. And uh, it took me a while to understand, for example, the fantastic sense of humor of the British people. <laughs> and that there is a subtle meaning hidden in every sentence. But this only deepened my fascination and my admiration for the United Kingdom, which remains as strong today as it was back then. And you can imagine that in the period just before and after the referendum, I thought a lot about my London time. I say this just not only because of my love for this country, but also because of what the United Kingdom has brought to Europe and the European Union. In a very understated British way, I think we do not always talk enough about that, and therefore allow me to look a little bit back before we look forward. Before the ashes of the Second World War even settled, it was Winston Churchill who made the best case for a united Europe. I read out passages from his 1946 Zurich speech, a famous speech, the last time I was here. It is the most eloquent and powerful case for the European Union you could ever wish to read. And if you haven't read it, I can only recommend to do so. And while the UK initially chose to be on the outside, it eventually took its place on the inside, making us both that much stronger. The relationship may not always have been smooth or perfect, but what relationship ever is? And in my opinion, the good far outweighs the difficult. As president of the European Commission, I want to pay tribute today to all those British people who contributed so much to the 45 plus years of European Union membership. I think of the British pragmatism and leadership when it came to opening up our union to members of our family who have been out in the cold for so long. The successive European Union enlargements were historic steps for our continent and they bear British hallmark. I think of those who helped to build our institutions, people like Commissioner Arthur Cockfield, who was known as the father of the single market. Or Roy Jenkins, he was president of the European Commission while I was at LSE, who did so much to pave the way for our single currency. I think of the European civil servants of British nationality who devoted their lives and their careers to Europe and have done so much to build our union. They will always be part of our family. I think of the British servicemen and service women who have helped to keep the peace from the Balkans to the Baltics. And I think of the millions of ordinary British people who have taken to the streets in pro-European marches in the last few years. Of course, 
<laughs> this is one of them. <laughs> of course, indeed, for them and for many millions more, the results of the referendum was a bitter pill to swallow. But it is people who make politics, and the decision of the British people in, the June, in June 2016 was clear. As much as we regret it, the European Union has always fully respected that decision. You have seen this throughout the last three and a half years. <coughs> Our negotiations were hard and they were long, but the European Union negotiated in good faith trying to find solutions that defend our own interests and respect the UK's choice. It is an agreement that we negotiated with our people and the integrity of the European Union in mind. It is one that preserves the remarkable peace and progress on the island of Ireland over the past 20 years. And I will not go into the ins and outs of the negotiations on the divorce. This is done and dusted as far as I am concerned. Before the end of the month, I expect both the British and the European parliaments to ratify the agreement. And so in just over three weeks, on the 30, 31st of January, the UK will spend its last day as a member state. This will be a tough and emotional day. But when the sun rises again on February 1st, the European Union and the United Kingdom will still be the best of friends and partners. The bonds between us will still be unbreakable. We will still contribute to each other's societies like so many Brits have done in the European Union and as so many EU citizens do here every single day, whether as teachers or as nurses, as doctors, whether working as CEOs or in NGOs. We will still have a lot to learn from each other. The UK is home to thriving creative and cultural sectors, to cutting at digital innovation and scientific excellence, in some of the world's best universities with brilliant minds, many of them from all across Europe, we will still share the same challenges from climate change to security. We will still be allies and like-minded partners in NATO, the United Nations and other international organizations. We will still share the same values and the belief that democracy, freedom, and the rule of law must be the foundation of our societies. We will still share the same history and geography, and whatever happens, our continent will still share the same destiny too. So as one door will unfortunately close, another one will open. And now is the time for us to look forward together. It is the time for the best and the oldest friends to build a new future together. And as only true friends can, I want to be very honest about what lies ahead of us. During the withdrawal agreement negotiation, there was always the uncertainty around whether Brexit would happen or not. 
It was an uncertainty that made the negotiations inevitably tense. This fresh negotiation ahead of us will take place against the backdrop of clarity and mutual interest in making it work. The European Union is ready to negotiate a truly ambitious and comprehensive new partnership with the United Kingdom. We will make as much as we can. We will go as far as we can. But the truth is that our partnership cannot and will not be the same as before. And it cannot and will not be as close as before. Because with every choice comes a consequence. With every decision comes a trade-off. Without the free movement of people, you cannot have the free movement of capital, goods, and services. Without a level playing field on environment, labor, taxation, and state aid, you cannot have the highest quality access to the world's largest single market. The more divergence there is, the more distant the partnership will be. And without an extension of the transition period beyond 2020, you cannot ex expect to agree on every single aspect of our new partnership. We will have to prioritize. The European Union's objective in the negotiations are clear. We will work for solutions that uphold the integrity of the European Union, its single market, and its customs union. There can be no compromise on that. But we are ready to design a new partnership with zero tariffs, zero quotas, zero dumping, a partnership that goes well beyond trade, and it is unprecedented in scope. Everything from climate action to data protection, fisheries, energy, transport, space, financial services, and to security. And we are ready to work day and night to get as much done within the time frame we have. None of this means that it will be easy. But we start this negotiation from a position of certainty, goodwill, shared interests and purpose. And we should be optimistic. We need to be optimistic. We need to be optimistic for those young people leaving school in the next years who want to study and learn abroad. We need to be optimistic and we need to look to how British and European researchers could work together to find solutions of our most pressing challenges and to develop the new technologies the world does really need. And we must ensure that we continue to work together on upholding peace and security in Europe and around the world. We must build a new comprehensive security partnership to fight cross-border threats ranging from terrorism to cybersecurity, to counterintelligence. Events in recent years in Salisbury, Manchester, London, and all across Europe have underlined the need for us to work together on mutual security. The threat of terrorism is real. 
and we have to share the necessary information and intelligence between the European Union and the United Kingdom to stop terrorists from crossing borders and attacking our way of life. The nature of today's threats means that no one can deal with these challenges on its own. This is even more true for foreign policies, as we see today. Even though Britain will be outside the European decision-making structures, there will be plenty of need for common responses to address foreign security and development challenges near and far be it in our immediate neighborhood in the East and South, or in the Horn of Africa, Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, or be it in wider Middle East or different parts of Latin America or Asia. The truth is that Brexit will not resolve any of the existing challenges for the European Union nor for the UK. And even being a part and not bound in the treaties, it will require intensive cooperation on our foreign and security policies. That's essential. That's essential because we share so much experience and because we share so many of the same values. We have to uphold these values, not only when it's easy, but above all when it's hard. Dear friends, as we embark on this new partnership with the United Kingdom, the European Union must also continue to forge its own path in today's world. One consequence of the Brexit vote has been to strengthen the unity and the faith in Europe as a project for the common good. The truth is that Brexit has highlighted the value of being together in today's ever more unsettled world. It reaffirmed our collective belief that we can do more when we do it together. Individually, the nations of Europe are becoming smaller and less influential on the world scale. In 1950, before the Union was formed, the United Kingdom, Italy, and Germany were among the ten most populous countries in the world, 1950. Today, only one lifespan later, only one of those is in the top 20. And while Europe's population is set to decline by the end of the century, Africa's alone will grow by more than 3 billion. At the same time, new economies are emerging, and old partners are retreating back to their own path. And we face change and new challenges ahead of us. Climate change, for example. If there is one area where the world needs our leadership, it is on protecting our climate. It is existential for Europe and for the whole world. Last month, we launched the European Green Deal. The European Green Deal is not only about emissions, it's also about emissions, but not only about emissions. It's about boosting innovation. It's about clean technologies. It's about green financing. It's about quality food. It's about modern mobility. The European Green Deal is our new growth strategy, and it will create new businesses and markets in Europe 
and across the world. The novelty and the difference is that we will and can foster a growth model that is cons not consuming or extracting, but one that gives back more to the planet than it takes away from the planet. Great Britain is as dedicated as the European Union when it comes to addressing climate change and taking global leadership. A whole continent has to mobilize, and the whole world needs to be part of this transformation. The European Green Deal won't happen overnight, and it will be demanding, and no country can hope to handle climate change alone. But if this is the right thing to do, and if we do it together, we can lead the change. Dear students, over the next months and years, we will have to loosen some of the threads which have been carefully stitched together between the European Union and the United Kingdom over five decades. And as we do so, we will have to work hard to weave together a new way forward. I say this because Brexit does not only mark the end of something. On the contrary, it also marks a new phase in an enduring partnership and friendship. It will be a partnership for your generation. And I count on you all to make it a success. You can choose collaboration over isolation. You can shape your continent's dis destiny. You can hold your governments accountable. You can refuse to be satisfied with the status quo. And you can turn things into how they should be. I know the last few years have been difficult and divisive. I hope that by being constructive and ambitious in the upcoming negotiation, we can all move forward together. There will be tough talks, and each side will do what is best for them. But I can assure you that the United Kingdom will always have a trusted friend and partner in the European Union. This is the story of old friends and new beginning, and in this good sense, long live Europe. Thank you. Okay, we have time for questions. I'm going to take them three at a time. I'd be grateful if they were brief, uh, and then I will turn to Ursula to reply. Can I see some hands? I'll take, um, let me take the gentleman here. I'll take the woman in the back, and I will take the woman back here in the green. So, yes, if the stewards could come and... Uh, if you could just give your name and uh, your affiliation and then ask your question. Hi, thank you very much for your speech. My name is Salator Berger. I'm an alumni of the European Institute in Alassi. Uh, my question regards uh, the place of citizens' rights in the, in the settlement between the UK and the EU. There was yesterday um, a leak letter by, uh, from Michel Barnier to um, the... <laughs> <laughs> Not directly from you, I expect. 
<coughs> about um, the fact that uh, the withdrawal agreement bill that the UK Parliament is passing at the moment uh, was granting the ability of UK Minister to water down some rights uh, about the future of uh, <coughs> EU citizens' rights in the UK uh, relative to the watchdog that could help uh, EU citizens have uh, a proper ability to due process in the case they were refused their ability to live in the UK uh, later on through the settled status. Sorry, it's a bit of a nerdy question. <laughs> uh, but what I'm wondering is how should we do, how should, how should the EU respond to threat of a watering down of EU citizens' rights here in uh, the, the ongoing process of the negotiations? Thank you. Thank you. The woman in the back right there uh, with her arm up and then there was a woman here in a green top, yes. Thank you very much. My name's Laura Parker. I'm a former European Commission official, proud European and married to an Italian. So mine is the other half of the question that my friend just asked, which is whether you would consider associate citizenship for British individuals. I feel torn by the notion that we leave the EU as a bureaucratic structure, but as someone who is, loves someone from another bit of the EU, I don't quite see how I managed to leave it. So I'd like you to say a little bit more perhaps about citizenship for we Brits who want to continue to be citizens of the European Union. And thank you so much for coming today. Hi, uh, my name's Georgia. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, I was really interested in what you spoke about, about sort of the pathway to future security cooperation. And I thought, especially between Britain and the EU with transnational threats and things like bilateral disputes with the US and China, things like that, what does this partnership look like in practice in the future? Could, could you repeat the, the second part? I didn't really Sorry. get it. <laughs> um, what does the future relationship between Britain and the EU look like combating conf uh, disputes in international affairs and things like the US-China trade war? Yeah. So, um, yes, of course, the question of uh, citizens' rights is a pressing one. So the good news is that Whoever, first of all, what, what the numbers are concerned, we have uh, around 3.5 European Union citizens living in the United Kingdom and vice versa, around 1.2, 1.3 million uh, British citizens living in the European Union. And all those, I'm just addressing those who live in uh, the opposite uh, region, um, the good news is uh, where you work and live, you can stay under the same conditions till the end of your life. So you have an absolute clear status when, for example, at the European, you live here in the United Kingdom, same uh, rights, same uh, possibilities as you have at the moment being till the end of the life, your life and vice versa. In Europe, it is so that um, you have these rights in the member state you live in. So if at the moment being you're situated in Belgium or in Croatia or in Portugal, you have the right to stay and work forever under the same conditions in Belgium, Croatia, or Portugal, wherever you are. The bitter truth then is, um, as I've said, uh, the UK will be third country after Brexit, and then we will have to negotiate. And this applies to everything I have been talking about. 
So um, we are very open to do the most because I'm a, I'm a true believer that as much exchange as possible uh, we should allow to our citizens. But as I've said before, if, for example, free movement of people is excluded, well, there is a trade-off to that. And therefore, it's a matter of negotiation where we end up at the very end. You know that the European Union is very open to that question, that we are strong believers that uh, we benefited both sides very much from the free movement, which goes also for the free movement of uh, not only people, but good services and capital. But those four principles go together. And therefore, the next weeks and months will show at what point we will end. The same goes for, um, for example, Erasmus. The same goes for research projects. Whatever we decided at 28, research projects, for example, we started, we will finish at 28. So the status quo stays. But the future is matter to negotiations. And therefore, I, ins I insist so much on keeping in mind that we have so many common interests that we should build a strong future, mainly if we look around at the rest of the world and then we realize how much we share. Therefore, we should be very, very careful within these negotiations, really to achieve the most possible for the citizens and for a good partnership in the future. Um, the question on security. It is internal security and external security, although both are very much interwoven, but, well, uh, officially we kind of separated. Um, Internally, of course, we have to talk about things like Europol or things like extradition. Um, what external security is concerned, there too, the UK will be a third country. It can choose, if invited, to take part, for example, in missions or operations. Um, we will have to negotiate uh, about the other topics. For example, being uh, part or taking part in projects in the European Defense Agency, EDA. Um, there are clear rules for third countries. So uh, the UK will be subject of these rules for third countries. Or what the European Defense Union is concerned and the European Defense Fund is concerned, the European Union itself is at the moment in the process of defining what the conditions are for third countries to join specific projects. And the UK will be, be then a third country that will fall under these rules of the European Union. We have, if we look at the world, an enormous interest on both sides to work as closely together as we can. You know, I've been for five years defense minister in Germany, I've seen our servicemen and our servicewomen fighting and working in missions shoulder by shoulder. Um, I've seen how they defend our values in this very complicated world. And therefore, I, I really recommend to ourselves to be clear-minded and far-sighted what threats are concerned and common interests are concerned to build a security partnership that is unprecedented and that really meets uh, the purpose we are 
all aiming at. What China is concerned? There, first of all, I think it's important that where do we stand together? For me, is always very clear, and the trade war we are, you were mentioning, the potential one between the United States and China, we will never ever forget where we come from and on what side of the table, if I may put it that way, we're sitting. So I'm a strong believer in the transatlantic partnership and friendship, although we do have issues with the White House. <laughs> but, you know, we're looking back on seven decades, 70 years and more of a friendship that is built of millions of contacts in the cultural sector, in science, in uh, the business sector, personal friendship, and this is the foundation we do have. And from that foundation on, we can tackle these issues too. So to be very clear where we're at. Um, I think it is very important that conflicts and trade, we always keep in mind uh, who will benefit at the very end. And therefore, uh, I would be very uh, welcoming if there are sensible and smart um, agreements we can find with China. With China, we have China's, China's very assertive. China's very far-reaching by now. I think we have to be very clear on topics where we disagree, very clear on that. We have to be very clear in the cyber domain where we have a lot of worries. But on the other hand, there are other topics where we have common ground. For example, uh, the topic of climate change. China starts now to introduce the emission trading system and is coming to the European Union and Commission and asking for our experience we had with introducing the emission trading system, which is good because in an ideal world over time fighting climate change, we need a worldwide budget of CO2 with an emission trading system on it, and CO2 has to, to have a price. So if we get China along to go into that topic together with that, it's good for us, it's good for China, it's good for the planet. But as I said, you have to be very frank on other issues, human rights, cybersecurity, where we have huge differences. Great. Thank you. Uh, let me turn to some colleagues from the press. Maybe uh, John Penner from BBC, and then maybe James, and then uh, uh, Sam <laughs> Coates from ITV. Thank you very much. Uh, John Pienaar, BBC News. Might it be possible to agree the outline of a deal in the time available, maybe covering goods, and then continue negotiating, or without a transition, must it be all or nothing by the end of the year? Okay, and then James. James Mace, ITV News. Madam President, on a, a similar note, when Boris Johnson says to you this afternoon, I want a comprehensive and ambitious free trade agreement and I want it by the end of the year, will you say to him, yes, let's go for it, or no, you can't have both? <laughs> Maybe one more here in the front, Sam. Uh, Sam Coates from Sky News. 
In your speech, you suggested that we could be on track for a zero tariff, um, uh, zero quota deal. What kind of obligations... You missed one. Zero dumping. Zero dumping. Yes. What kinds of <laughs> obligations might Britain have to adhere to to get that? Or are you simply offering that here today? Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Voilà. The transition time. It is very, very tight. Um, and uh, I briefly touched on the topics we have to negotiate. And this was not even the whole list of it. So it is basically impossible to negotiate all of what I've been mentioning and the other dossiers that uh, are there too. Therefore, we will have to prioritize as long as we face that deadline of end of 2020. And uh, I can only recommend that we prioritize it in a way that we first of all tackle those topics where at the end of the year, when we're running out of time, we will not have an international agreement or something to fall back on, but only a hard exit which would not be for the, good for the UK, nor would it be good for the European Union. Um, and therefore, priority, uh, the priorities will have to be sorted out. Uh, I'm, I'm deeply convinced that, as I said, for all the fields, this is huge what we have to negotiate. Uh, the, I mean, net nine to 10 months at most, because at the very end it has to be ratified too. Uh, will be enough. But therefore, it's not an all-or-nothing thing, but it's a question of priorities, uh, pr priorities we have to set and we have to work as hard as possible. I would prefer that uh, we look at the whole scenery during summer or before the summer starts would be better <laughs> because uh, we might together uh, want to take uh, a reconsideration of uh, the time frame before the 1st of July. Um, but um, let us start, first of all, at the 1st of February with sorting the field and going into the negotiations. As I said, we're uh, determined to work as hard as we can, as much as we can, but there are, of course, limits. Um, zero quota, zero tariffs, zero dumping means level playing field clear level playing field on both sides. So uh, whatever is diverging from a level playing field, of course, increases um, or decreases the uncomplicated access to the single market. And for details, we would have to go through the different fields. But uh, uh, if you take, for example, uh, well, no, I will not go into details because otherwise we go through the whole negotiation now. But, <laughs> which will take a bit more than this lecture. <laughs> Actually, more than end of 2020. But um, the, the idea behind it is uh, zero quota, zero tariff, zero dumping, absolute level playing field, fine. The more you diverge from that, the more, of course, or the less the, the, the uncomplicated access to the single market is there. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, final round of questions. Uh, let me take, oh, so many. <laughs> the gentleman back there, 
One here, and I'd like a woman. Yes, over here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Juan Lombardo. I'm uh, currently posted to the, Embex the Mexican Embassy here in London, and also an LSE alumni. So my question has to do with... Uh, could you, if you could speak up just a little bit. Yeah, my question... Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. My question has to do with third-party negotiations, uh, and particularly with the capacity of the UK to negotiate with those third parties, particularly with those with whom the EU has an agreement already, like a uh, free trade agreement. So I'm one, my, uh, there's a bit of confusion here, but my understanding is that the UK will only be capable of negotiating once they formally leave the EU. And those third countries will be notified by the commission that you preside, madam. So my question is, when will that notification will come to those third countries? letting us know when the UK is legally capable of negotiating a free trade agreement and no longer binding by the agreements that it has as a member of the EU. Okay. One here and the lady back here. Who's next? Yeah, me? Thanks. Yes, yes, please. Yeah, Matt Fry, Channel 4 News. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, there we go. Um, wonderful speech. Uh, just to get back to the question of convergence, You've laid out your store very clearly here. We also know from members of the Boris Johnson government that there are those who are looking for a kind of Singapore on the Thames model. To what extent do you perceive that to be a threat to the interests of the European Union? And what are you prepared to do about it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think it's... Oh, no, you had one, two, third. One more. Two yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, we'll just take uh, this thank one you. here. Um, my name is Inga. I am an LSE alumna as well and a researcher with LSE Ideas and the Derendorf Forum. Um, you emphasized the joint challenge facing the EU and the UK regarding security and talked about the EU and the UK being like-minded allies in NATO. Uh, you also mentioned the friction in the White House. Given Macron's recent comments, the situation in Turkey and the US military actions, do you think NATO is a viable alliance for the future and will, you know, contribute to the relationship between the EU or the UK, or do you think it'll create even more challenges? Yeah, okay. I just have to write it down. I must admit I didn't really get the question uh, all above, but uh, I think, I think um, it was so... When, when will the UK have the green light to do third-party negotiations from oh, the EU? Okay. I look at Michel Barnier. When will it be, Michel? <laughs> <laughs> say it. Oh, just, just say it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Michel, come join me. <laughs> yeah, Thank you, Ursula. Um, <laughs> No, to be clear, as the president said, leaving the EU, leaving the single market, leaving the huge and very, very many consequences. And I just want to repeat that leaving the EU, the single market, and the customer union means for the UK to leave in the same time, mechanically, automatically, 600 international agreements among them all the trade agreements. That means that the UK has to rebuild each and every trade agreement with all the other third countries in the world, which is a huge and a very, very important task. Um, and what we have planned in the negotiation, in the withdrawal agreement, uh, and for the, the, the transition, that the UK will be uh, allowed to, to, to begin and 
we know that they, they have already begun for last year many negotiations with many third countries. Um, none of this agreement can be implemented before the, 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 the UK leaves. Um, so as a member states, they, they, they cannot implement the, 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 the disagreement. That means that uh, uh, they are allowed to negotiate, and we give them this time to negotiate. Um, they cannot be implemented before the UK leaves them. All right. We go back to Singapore question. Um, I would not recommend that we kind of uh, label uh, the end of uh, the negotiation. It will be the EU-UK uh, brand on it. Um, and as I've said, I, I think we have to be very clear that uh, it's a matter of trade-off and choices. And um, nothing will be as it was before. All will change. We have to accept that fact. So there is a difference being a member state and not being a member state. What access and ease is concerned. And um, therefore, the fields will be a matter of negotiation. I take a, a very important field that are the financial services. There, too, all will change. Because right now, um, we are all able within the 28th, if you have a bank, that from home you can operate in a different member state easily. This will change. This is over. And um, the question is, you can get for some sectors some equivalences, which is kind, uh, kind of the, the, uh, being allowed to operate that way. But this is a decision then, unilateral from the European Union. And therefore, a whole uh, of topics, a lot of topics, we have to go through and figure out uh, how we end up at the very uh, end. Of course, both sides have their strengths and their weaknesses. Both sides have a field where uh, they are better off and they are not as good off. And therefore, um, it is a matter also of um, always looking at the mutual interest we do have. At the very end, we want our economies to, to prosper. At the very end, we want our citizens to have an easy life uh, going back and forth. At the very end, we want science and research and wonderful universities like this one to be open uh, on the continent and here uh, in uh, the UK. So if this is the goal, we have to uh, try to minimize as much as possible the, possible the deviation from the level playing field and to negotiate as fast and as intensive as possible to have a smooth ongoing, because again, I say um, there are other challenges out there in the world we have to tackle together. And that leads me to the third question, NATO. I'm deeply convinced that um, collective defense, Article 5 in NATO, will always be NATO. And this is good. NATO is the strongest military alliance in the world. And this is good too. The European Union will never be a military alliance. It's much broader and way different. And it has completely different means and instruments. We have, over the last three and a half years, started to build up the European Defense Union, which is complementary to NATO 
following the idea that as 27, uh, it is smart to be in, to a high degree interoperable, uh, to procure together, to develop and research together, this is smart in doing it, and to get our act together, if I may put it that way. It's also in NATO's interest because 22 of the European member states are also member in NATO, so it's in NATO's interest. But I see many fields besides the purely question of collective defense, which is a very important one, uh, where also the European Union is being called upon. And therefore, it has to get structures and procedures, as I was saying in the European Defense um, Union, but also the wide field of economic development, neighborhood, diplomacy, um, all the topics that are needed to uh, not only win uh, or settle a conflict, but to win peace then afterwards and give people a perspective for their future. And um, at the moment being, I always think that we should never ever underestimate the importance of the ability to have a dialogue and to have trusted relations. I know that during times where there are tensions and conflicts, that is dominant. But at a certain point, in every conflict, you have to go back to talks. And then it's helpful to have established channels, to have trusted relations where you can start again to establish some kind of link, to get out of a dramatic crisis, and to work on increased peace and reconciliation within the region and beyond the region. And therefore, uh, I'm a strong believer that NATO is important, but I'm very much convinced that NATO also needs the European Union. Thank you so much. So I wanted to thank you uh, for many things, but really the most important thing is you've reminded us that the connections between the UK and the European Union are grounded in profound and deep history and common interests and values. And you've reminded us that there's a very personal dimension to those connections. And many people in this room, I think, share those very personal connections in our own relationships and in our own lives. The negotiations will be about policy. Policy can diverge. And policy after January 31st will probably diverge. But those personal and those very profound common values and interest will persevere after January 31st. And you've reminded us to keep sight of those much more important long-term issues as we enter a very complicated set of negotiations. Thank you for coming, and thank you for reminding us of those big, important issues.